The next series of cases was presented to Dr. Skip Burris by Dr. Lowell Hart from Fort Myers, Florida, beginning with a young woman who presented at first diagnosis with metastatic disease. The first patient is a 36-year-old Hispanic female who was diagnosed in September of 2008. She presented to a nearby medical center outside of Fort Myers with complaints of abdominal pain, nausea, and a weight gain. She had a CAT scan done there which showed some presumed hepatic metastasis. She initially had a GI workup looking for a colorectal or a stomach cancer. That was all negative, and she eventually had a CT-guided liver biopsy which showed metastatic adenocarcinoma. Their initial diagnosis was that she could have had ovarian cancer, and she was referred to a GYN oncologist for further evaluation. He actually did do a physical exam on the patient and found that she had a left breast mass. So that was biopsied by a general surgeon and found to be infiltrating ductal carcinoma, which was ER positive and PR low positive, and was highly amplified for HER2 new with a ratio of about 7.1 on fish. And the markers and everything was the same as the liver? The liver had been done in an outside hospital, and I don't think they had done estrogen receptors on that. They just said adenocarcinoma, not otherwise specified. Was her breast primary obvious, and they just didn't examine her? It was obvious, yes. It had not been obvious to her. When we talked with her more about this even today, she did not note any breast complaints herself. She just noted that her belly was increasing in size and she was feeling poorly. So she had some further staging studies. She was found to have bone metastasis to several areas which were not especially symptomatic. She was found to have ascites. She had some low-level pleural effusions and some prominent axillary nodes on the scans. So this is really a tragic situation of a young woman presenting with metastatic disease. Does she have children, or what's her life situation? Yes, she is divorced. She has three children and a sister who were her main support, and she had not been to see a doctor in a little while and had not had regular mammography or that sort of thing, but she's quite young, and she really had a difficult time dealing with this when it first came out because she was quite ill. She was very systemically ill. She was somewhat jaundiced. She had obvious societies. She needed several paracentesis done in sort of fairly rapid order just for relief of symptoms. So she presents with metastatic ER-positive, HER2-positive disease and is super sick. Yes. So what did you do? Well, I decided to throw the book at this and gave her chemotherapy with Taxol and Herceptin. Because it was ER positive and she was so young, I decided to give her some estrogen suppression at the same time. So I started her on a Zolodex shot. So she got that initially. And she tolerated all of her treatment quite well, aside from a little bit of some hot flashes. We did need to do a few more paracentesis over the first several weeks just for comfort. So this is just a few months ago, huh? Right. She's had about eight cycles of treatment with Taxol and really has had a nice response. The liver function tests have almost entirely normalized. The ascites has gone away. She tolerated her treatment nicely. Again, she had a few hot flashes as expected. No major problems. So she was placed on Zometa also, which she tolerated nicely. And she's off of pain medications now and has stabilized quite nicely. She just recently started to get some significant peripheral neuropathy from the Taxol. So I felt at this point that she was stable enough that I could discontinue the chemotherapy and leave her on the Herceptin as well as hormonal treatment. What were your thoughts about her, Skip? 
fascinating case, a very brave, courageous woman who obviously loved life and her family very much. It was a pleasure to meet with her and her sister when we talked to her about her children who were actually ages 17, 16, and 12, all girls. She became quite tearful, and it was clear that at that part of the discussion evaluation that that's where she thought about her own mortality. This patient, I think, is going to be one of those who does well with hormonal therapy plus trastuzumab. There was data presented at San Antonio of the randomized trials of lapatinib and letrozole versus letrozole with improved response rates and time to progression. There was some debate about how overall effective the prior trial of trastuzumab plus arimidex versus arimidex was, but the response rates are dramatically better, progression-free survival is better. And then survival really becomes muddied because these patients do so well for so long. This patient here has actually had very little paclitaxel and trastuzumab and looks great and is doing very well. As I mentioned earlier, compared to the description of her prior to the holidays, today she almost looked asymptomatic and looked very well. She looked as good as her sister did when I walked into the office. And she's really got a great quality of life and she's enjoying being able to spend the time with her children. And tamoxifen and trastuzumab is a very easy regimen for her. Now, has this woman ever, Lowell, faced a serious medical problem or personal problem like this? No, she'd otherwise been in pretty good health other than this. So young woman cruising along, mama three, all of a sudden finds out she has metastatic disease. What's your impression, Lowell, in terms of how she's dealing with it personally? She's doing better now than she was at the start. At the start, she was extremely tearful all the time. The family was very, you know, they just had one sort of disastrous thing that they found you know they just she went into the other hospital with just you know she thought her belly was bothering her and then boom 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 she's got cancer she's got malignant ascites and it's incurable and so it all hit them at once so I think now as a few months have gone by it seems like you know she's marshaled a lot of emotional resources so she is much better now than she was at the start I mean I think having a nice response does certainly help your mental outlook quite a bit there's no question about that just interject, we're talking about her social situation, and her sister made a big point about the fact that she's divorced and a single mom caring for three teenagers. And it was in the context of when I was questioning her about the delay in diagnosis. And the impression is she's been a single mom for quite a while with three very active children, and she thought about them first and herself second, and that was clearly part of the story. But when I said at the beginning she's a brave and courageous woman, I mean, she really is motivated to live and to get these kids through school. What would you be thinking about as time goes on? Unfortunately, most likely at some point she'll probably have progressive disease, and of course it might depend upon how that progression is occurring. But as you start to look at over her future, Skip, there's a lot more alternatives out on the table now for a patient like this than there were a few years ago. What are some of the things that you might be thinking as time goes on? That's an excellent point, and it's interesting that the number of options are quite substantial. Lowell was talking to her today about the possibility of having a nephrectomy done. She's 36 and has a long time till the natural menopause, and so at some point thinking about not taking a shot every few months and 
ovarian ablation probably makes more sense. The other options in the metastatic setting, and we could start with probably the most exciting presentation at San Antonio Breast this year, which was the TDM1 compound, which was trastuzumab linked to a metansinoid chemotherapeutic response rates of 40% in patients that have been on trastuzumab therapies for a median of a year and a half to two years. The lapatinib plus trastuzumab trial was also very positive. Joyce O'Shaughnessy presented some data on the combination of the two versus the single agent lapatinib. Jenny Chang had a presentation about neoadjuvant inflammatory patients, and it's also obvious that there are certain subsets that have mutations, the P10 deletion group and other subsets where giving the small molecule and the antibody makes a lot of sense. And then you could go right down the list. You mentioned PARP inhibitors before as a subset, but we've got HSP90, the heat shock protein inhibitors. We've got the histone deacetylase inhibitors. The HER2-positive patients are going to have quite a number of choices. Certainly the chemotherapy-linked antibody, the TDM1, seems to be best in class for the data we know to date. So, and I know, Lowell, you put a lot of your patients on study, but for practical purposes, I mean, is there a way, for example, that a patient like this could get TDM1? We have a trial with TDM1, so she could potentially get that. That's interesting. What's the eligibility for the study? I think you have to have had either one or two prior regimens to go on the study of measurable disease because I know we've had people, you know, the more common situation that we're seeing now is women who've had four or five different regimens with Herceptin. They've already been through Tyker, but I mean, that data looks so good. I personally, I don't have to ask Skip, but I wouldn't be surprised if that drug is approved sometime within the next year or two, I would think. I mean, that might be an approvable drug, would you think? Or? I would. I think that, and as Lowell was mentioning, you know, there's a couple TDM1 phase twos. There's one that's specifically looking at patients that are resistant to lapatinib, and that'll probably be the easiest path through the FDA to actually be in the third-line setting in patients that have had at least one or two prior trastuzumab regimens and then a lapatinib regimen, and they're moving the drug quickly into the first-line setting. So we're already seeing some studies ongoing where we're seeing TDM1 in comparison with docetaxel and trastuzumab. Now, again, thinking ahead in this woman, and certainly you can try more hormones, et cetera, but what about the option, if she does progress, of continuing the trastuzumab and just bringing back, say, a different chemotherapy skip? I think that's a very reasonable choice. You know, there has been great difficulty in accruing to trials of discontinuing trastuzumab. There was a German study that looked at capecitabine with trastuzumab and or discontinuing the trastuzumab, and the trial was stopped early because the difference was so substantial. There's synergism. In terms of it favoring continuing the trastuzumab and switching the chemo. Correct. Simply switching from a paclitaxel regimen to capecitabine and continuing trastuzumab versus stopping the trastuzumab and switching to capecitabine. You know, if you look across the menu of items that are available, we've had positive clinical trial results with venerelbine, with gemcitabine, with some of the platinums, as well as capecitabine. So I do think that we've gotten a lot of mileage. It's very common now to think about these trastuzumab patients receiving regimens that go on for two or three years. That's actually the group that's been enrolled to the TDM1 and the lapatinib trials. So that's been a plausible strategy, and it's only a minority of patients that appear to get truly resistant to trastuzumab. So if she, for example, goes with this current treatment for you know a year or two, is doing well, and then has a gradual progression, Lowell, what would you be thinking about doing at that point? 
I would probably do Lapatinib and Zolota, I would say, would be my first choice if she has a, you know, gradual progression. And then after that, we would either cycle back in Herceptin and another drug or TDM if that's available. I would certainly, I guess my preference would probably be to do a Ticarb Zolota next. And then if TDM is available on a clinical trial, they go to that after that. I think that's very reasonable. You know, it's interesting being participating in clinical trials and Lowell's group's a great occur. That taints your thinking a little bit in terms of, you know, if you move on to lapatinib regimen next, you're going to be more likely to be eligible for a TDM1 trial. If TDM1 wasn't out there, I think you might think about going to venerelbine next and then holding off on lapatinib until you needed to. The other thing that's interesting about bringing lapatinib into the mix, if you've got patients on trastuzumab and you have the antibody still present because of the long half-life and you add on lapatinib, you really get a synergistic kick in terms of the results I've seen in my practice. And I do think we're going to see some leeway in terms of being able to give these two molecules together, the lapatinib and the trastuzumab. Lowell, how do you think she would do on lapatinib capecitabine? How would you approach the dosing and do you think she'd be compliant? I think she'd be quite compliant. I don't think that would be a problem. The capecitabine dosing is still problematic, usually for patients that I think are a little more on the frail side. I usually will start them on a flat dose of either 1,000 or 1,500 twice a day and then kind of go from there depending on how they're doing, especially if you're going to give it with another drug. So I was talking with Skip some today about this issue with other patients as far as the dosing of the Zolota in these patients with metastatic disease. And I usually start low and then just go up and add pills on if they're doing well and having no toxicity. Have you tried the memorial one week on, one week off kind of approach? I have tried it on occasion and, you know, mostly for patients that have had poor tolerance of the standard regimen. And I think there is a lot of, I know there's a lot of biological reason for it and it makes some sense from the pharmacokinetic standpoint. So I probably will be doing more of that in the future. I know in their studies, they were showing that you could give quite a bit larger dose. I think some of the doses that they were able to use on that would still be somewhat scary to use for us in a non-protocol setting in a metastatic patient. What do you think about that strategy, Skip? I think that what Lowell describes is certainly reasonable. I have become much more a fan of the every other week schedule. I found less hand-foot syndrome. I found the patients enjoy the break. It came mostly out of my use of those regimens in the colon cancer spectrum where it fit nicely with every other week oxaliplatin dosing or ironitecan dosing. But I'm probably giving 90% of my patients now the every other week regimen in generally a flat dose sort of fashion, which probably works out to be close to 1,000 per meter squared twice a day. What about the issue of lapatinib in terms of side effects and toxicity? Lol, what have you observed? I've found very little diarrhea. I know it has been described from time to time. It certainly is not the same you know, sort of diarrhea as you can see with other agents. I have seen some skin toxicity and rash, but nothing in my experience that's really forced me to take major treatment delays with it. So I found it to be quite tolerable. Skip? You know, I think you've got to be cognizant of educating the patient about speaking up early. I think you want to manage the toxicities before they turn into grade 2, 3. And as Lowell's comments make with the nurses having a good relationship with the patients and discussing it, we've been able to keep most of our patients on with a minimal amount of supportive care. 